0: Hello everyone and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, September 23rd, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news and then also dropping in an interview with David S. Goyer, who's the showrunner of the new Apple TV Plus Sci-Fi Show Foundation. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm a senior writer at SlashFilm.com and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film senior writer and weekend editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. All right, Brad. So you and I are here. We're going to talk about a couple news items before we present Jacob's interview with David S. Goyer. So let's jump into it and kick things off by talking about a big acquisition that Netflix made recently. Tell me about that.
1: Well, Netflix has a golden ticket here. <laughs> <laughs> if you love Roll Dahl, the author behind... Uh, such stories as uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or Willy Wonk and the Chocolate Factory, if you're you know, a purist of the original movie, uh, the BFG, Matilda. Uh, you're going to be very excited with what Netflix is doing because they've just expanded uh, a huge deal with the Roald Dahl story company uh, that makes their deal with them even bigger. Previously, they had already set up uh, projects such as uh, new animated shows based on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, an adaptation of Matilda the Musical, uh an- another spin on the BFG. Now they're going to be expanding that by creating a whole universe of stuff inspired by Roald Doll stories. This includes uh live action movies now, more animated movies, TV shows, spin-offs, uh remakes, novels, games, uh probably lunchboxes. Um <laughs> I mean anything and everything involving Roald Doll is on the table for Netflix now.
0: So I, I saw Scott Mendelson, who writes for Forbes, he covers the box office, and he wrote an article basically saying like, this sounds a little iffy to him, because Roald doll adaptations have not consistently performed well at the box office. It's been a little hit or miss in terms of, you know, certain movies, the like the original Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory is a classic Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Well, it probably performed pretty well, I don't think is looked at quite as fondly. Um, you've got movies like Matilda from our childhoods that that I'm sure we sort of remember fondly. Our generation maybe remembers fondly. But then, you know, there's like the witches and, and some stuff that has that not uh, necessarily um, worked as well in recent times. So what do you make of Netflix expanding a deal like this that was already like pretty significant? And it really seems like they're just going all in on this IP. What do you think about the choice to like double down on Roald Doll?
1: Yeah, I think they're just pulling on Roald Dahl's udders as much as they can so they can <laughs> just get all that milk out of there. Um, <laughs>
0: what a horrible
1: image. Thank you for that. <laughs> it's uh, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised. Like these these stories are classics. They are they are valuable and even though they haven't done well at the box office, I think that there's also a space for movies like this to maybe have more success on Netflix than they otherwise might on, um in movie theaters because when you send a movie to theaters it has to, you know, get that box office revenue to make the budget back, make the marketing uh, budget back. And there's a lot of pressure for a movie to be successful. But if it's if it's Netflix's uh, own movie and they have it in their library, it's going to be there forever. And it's always going to be something that adds value to their overall library. And especially when it comes to programming for kids, a lot of the stuff is very family friendly. And so it's stuff that parents will put on for their kids all the time. And if they're, you know, with all these stories at their disposal, it enriches their streaming library. Live- library that much more with familiar titles that kids and families will want to watch for a long time, probably.
0: Yeah, is there a, uh, I think that's a great point. Is, is there a particular Roald Dahl story that you would like to see in in Netflix form here, whether it's something that's already been adapted or like a, a story of his that maybe you read as a, as a kid or anything? Um, I must admit that aside from the Roald Dahl stories that have been turned
1: into movies, I'm not super familiar with his other uh, books. So anything that's been turned into a movie, I'm very much familiar with. But otherwise, I haven't read much of uh, Roald Roll Doll's um, bibliography. Is that yeah. that's right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So so yeah. So uh, I'm I'm a basic bitch. So Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is definitely my favorite. Um. I really liked what Wes Anderson did with Fantastic Mr. Fox, and I I wouldn't be surprised if there's something that you could do with with that as well. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm not necessarily looking for anything. Uh, I don't know, per- looking forward to anything in particular. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I did just see, though, though that there's um, this uh, series of short stories called Roald Dolls: Tales of the Unexpected. And that sounds like it could be something that uh, might... Be interesting, like an anthology kind of series, if they were, were were able to do that. I'm not sure if that's something that's included in this rights deal, since it's something that is more geared towards adults. Hmm. Um, but that has the potential to be uh, interesting.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard of that book, but the the uh, the answer to my own question, the thing that I'm you know potentially looking forward to, if they were to to adapt it, is uh, something very similar. It's a collection of seven short stories. It's called "The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar and Six More." and i remember being really really fond of this book when i was a kid um and it it is very much like an anthology thing there's there's these individual stories that um i think have the potential to be really interesting if done in a you know a really cinematic way so um i i my understanding uh well according to wikipedia it says um these books were, or this book rather was generally regarded as being aimed at a slightly older audience than many of his other children's books. So it depends on really the scope of what Netflix is going for here. Cause I think you're right. I think they acquired or sort of, you know, expanded this deal because of the potential it has to, um, to unite the family around the TV again, you know? Um, so I wonder if they will stick mostly to those like, uh, kid centric stories that, um, potentially families will gather around and and watch or if they will try to expand out into different corners of Roald Dahl's uh, bibliography and and maybe go from there. So
1: maybe we'll uh, get like a a Roald Dahl version of the, the Avengers too, you know, where like uh, the BFG and, and Matilda and, all the animals from Fantastic Mr. Fox have to take on Slugworth or something like and, that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would not be surprised at all if that happened. I think a lot of people, a lot of uh, uh, roll doll purists, if there are such things... Um, would and probably... here's,
1: the, here's the plot. Slugworth is building more and more chocolate factories. He's <laughs> destroying the Fantastic Mr. Fox animal characters' homes. Uh, it's threatening to even reach into the world of, of the big, friendly giant. Um, and uh, Matilda is uh, also upset because her, um, her home is going to get destroyed because of the factory expansion, too. And they they all have to team up to fight capitalism.
0: Brad, this is gold. Why are you giving away free ideas on the podcast? I know. you got to pitch this to Netflix.
1: I'm off to Netflix right now. <laughs>
0: uh, well, before you make your trek out to Hollywood to pitch that idea, uh, I just wanted to talk to you about one more news story real quickly, which is uh, Peacock is developing a pitch-perfect TV show that annoyingly is just called pitch perfect i'm really sort of fed up with with franchise entries being named the exact same thing as other entries in their own franchise like especially when you hear that this really doesn't have much to do with the pitch perfect vibe yeah so the the film trilogy uh has been really focused on women like the the um members of the Barden University Bellas, which is an acapella group. And Anna uh, Anna Kendrick starred in these movies. Uh, Haley Steinfeld popped in for the third one to sort of co-star in it and sort of seemed like maybe the baton was going to be handed to her. But uh, the franchise stopped after three, but now Peacock is developing this into a show. And the only character that they're bringing back or that they've announced so far that they're bringing back is uh, the character Bumper Allen played by Adam Devine. Is it Devine or Divine? Divine, uh, Divine. Adam Devine. Um And so this, you know, he was sort of like the obnoxious villain in these movies. Uh, The official description says in this new series for Peacock, several years after we last saw him in Pitch Perfect, Adam Devine's Bumper Allen moves to Germany to revive his music career when one of his songs becomes big in Berlin. So uh, on paper, sort of gut reaction. Brad, what do you make of this? Well, first of all, I would just want to say that I I have hated the Pitch Perfect sequels.
1: Uh, I think the first Pitch Perfect is fantastic. Um, It was surprisingly funny. It has a great soundtrack. And all of the the things that were great about the first movie got lost in the sequels. Uh, Just the comedy wasn't there anymore. It kind of couldn't figure out what to do with the characters. Some of them going against, like what was already established about them in the first movie, as far as their motivations and what they were trying to accomplish. Um, and they're just not well-made and they very frustrated me very much to the point where I wish that I, they didn't exist. And <laughs> I, I sometimes I border on just not acknowledging them at all. Um, for this series, I, aside from the fact that I, I hate that the police are coming to get me right now. <laughs> um, but I, I also hate the fact that like this, it's being called pitch perfect when like we just talked about, has nothing to do with really about the, those movies and just bringing this character back. However, I do think that there is some potential to maybe have something that is like, that could be in the same territory as like a a pop star or something like that, you Mm -hmm. know, a sort of like um, mocking the music industry, a comedy set in that world. And uh, Adam Devine's character is definitely a douche bro, but like, because of his relationship with Rebel Wilson's character, he kind of had a little bit of redeeming qualities towards the end of the franchise, Mm -hmm. um, as silly as, as it was. And I think there's also potential here, because if he's going to Germany, I'm, I'm hoping that they're going to bring Flula Borg back into the equation, who appeared as part of a German acapella group in Pitch Perfect 2. Uh, so that could be, I think it was Pitch Perfect 2 anyway. They, they did yes, it fun. was. Uh, and so he's extremely funny. He he's, has a great bit part in the Suicide Squad. And so if he's involved in the series somehow, then I will be even more interested and hope that it can just be coming that something that works on its own as opposed to relying on, you know, the Pitch Perfect brand.
0: Yeah, I enjoyed Pitch Perfect 2 more than you did. Uh, I think we've had arguments about that in the past. Um, I, I'm not like willing to die on the hill that Pitch Perfect 2 is great or anything like that. I just, uh, I, I don't have um, quite the uh, the disdain for it that you do. But um, I, I generally share your feelings in terms of like, you know, what this is, what it could be, what it what it sounds like anyway. The only thing that um that sort of made me do a double take when I was reading about this is one of the uh writers who is associated with this. And I don't know if you saw this in the the press release, Brad, but Megan Amram is the I guess the brains behind this thing. And if you Um, That's great news. Megan Amram is awesome. Uh,
1: She's a spectacular comedy writer.
0: Yeah. So for people who might not immediately recognize her name, she's worked on shows like Parks and Recreation, The Good Place, Silicon Valley, and she created this really fantastic web series called an Emmy for Megan a few years ago where she basically concocted the entire thing as just a, a a, like a nakedly transparent way for her to win an Emmy in a really small category. Uh, it did not work. She did not win, but um, she's really like one of the funniest writers working in Hollywood at the moment. She's worked a lot with Mike Schur and, and sort of uh, has been like a, I guess, a protege of his uh, in some capacity. So um, I, I, the fact that this is her idea uh, it's a, I think one of the um, presidents of universal Universal Television said, you know, Megan Amram, whose clever adaptation of Pitch Perfect is sure to have audiences laughing out loud, blah, 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 whatever. Um, the fact that, 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 uh, Megan Amram was cited as like the person behind this thing. Um, yeah, it makes me want to give it much more of the benefit of the doubt than I would have otherwise, because like we were saying sort of on paper, this seems like maybe a little iffy, but, uh, yeah, if I, I trust that Megan Amram knows what she's doing when it comes to telling a good, uh, comedic story. So, Um, yeah, I think that's good. That's basically going to do it for us. Uh, I just wanted to also drop in this interview that Jacob did with David S. Goyer, who you probably recognize if you've been paying attention to mainstream, like blockbuster movies over the past decade. Plus he's one of the people behind, uh, he wrote or co-wrote Batman Begins and, and uh, Man of Steel, and he's been, you know, uh, a major figure in the blockbuster space for a long time. And he is the, I think, co-creator and showrunner of Foundation, which is this really ambitious new science fiction adaptation that Apple TV Plus is doing. Uh, I believe the first episode or two go up uh, tomorrow as you're listening, or as, as we're recording this, tomorrow, September 24th. Uh, and Jacob sat down with, with uh, virtually, with David S. Gorier and, and, and talked to him about how it, he exactly approached uh, adapting these this really um, sprawling novel series by As, uh, Isaac Asimov, their, you know beloved classic sci-fi novels that span a very, very long period of time. Uh, it sort of seems unadaptable, but Goyer figured out a way to do it. So here is Jacob's conversation with David S. Goyer.
2: I made a deliberate choice to not revisit Foundation, the book, before watching the show. I want to go in fresh, but my memories of it, Really in high school uh, was that it was all really fascinating but it was also a lot of people sitting in rooms talking about things that have happened or will happen so I'm curious uh, what and, and
3: smoking space tobacco
2: <laughs> yeah so at what point did you realize the, the way into this because it's, it's a terrific book but it nothing about screams TV show or movie
3: You know, a couple times in my career, I'd been offered the opportunity to adapt it as a feature or series of features, and both times I turned it down because I didn't think that it could be realized in three hours or even potentially nine hours. Um, I won't lie, uh, watching the success of Game of Thrones and immersing myself like a lot of the audience in something like that, uh, a work that's so sprawling, I, I think the advent of that show uh, or shows like Breaking Bad, you know, or even better call Saul. I mean, the idea of like watching something unfold in a novelistic way over the course of 50, 60, 70 episodes that it seemed like the medium had caught up to um, the book. Uh, I only had 24 hours to decide whether or not I was going to throw my hat in the ring. And so I thought, okay, I've got to deal with these big time jumps. I've got to deal with the fact that a lot of important things happen off screen. Um, And, and, and for me, but for me, the big thing was the books aren't particularly emotional. They're books about ideas. And so I thought, is, is there a way to create characters that can emotionally embody the themes that Asimov is talking about? If, if, can do that, then maybe there's a way to tell the story. And so I told the Asimov estate, Robin Asimov, that I, d- I didn't think it was possible to do just a straight line for line adaptation. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, they said, We agree with you. And even Asimov did uh, <laughs> before he died. We agree with you. Um, I said, You know, I know Asimov was initially writing the trilogy in a post World War II environment. That's not the world that we live in today. Mm-hmm. So I felt that for the metaphors we needed to be interrogating what was happening today. And I felt that the audience needed to reflect, um, the world of today. There are almost no female characters in the first book. Um, I think there's one that has a few speaking lines. So I said to the Asimov state, how do you feel if I gender flip a few of the characters? And they said, great. We, we think you should, Mm uh, so it was it was trying to find ways in emotionally, and that's what led me to the invention of the genetic dynasty. So the empire is resistant to change. How can I come up with a character or a series of characters that can embody that? And I thought, well, the purest embodiment of, of being resistant to change is a single individual just cloning themselves over and over and over again, uh, this just immense act of hubris and ego. And and I thought, oh, that's a cool way to do that. And at the same time, it allows the audience to have the same face that they can attached to the empire from episode to episode, mm-hmm. or perhaps from season to season. But then that, I don't know how many episodes you've seen, but then that led to, I think, some really interesting emotional stories uh, to tell about the emperors themselves. Mm-hmm. Because even though they're resistant to change, they're all living in the shadow of Cleon the First, mm-hmm. and they're all desperate to put their own individual mark on the world and mark on the galaxy, and they're all doomed to fail. And that was really interesting as well. That was the starting point. Uh, another starting point Gail Dornick is the point of view character in the first story. And I thought I'm going to extrapolate from that and make Gail Dornick the point of view character for the first season. Mm-hmm. And what's nice about that is Gail's never been to tranter. She's never been off her home planet. She's never made a jump uh, through space. She hasn't really been introduced that much to psychohistory. So she can be the audience's eyes and ears. And um, she can be their guide into this world and all these crazy concepts.
2: Yeah, and uh, you referenced it already, but the third episode uh, has an extended sequence where one of the the older clone uh, of of the triumvirate of um, uh, of emperors is getting ready to uh, ascend, and a new a new one will be born. And I think that was what I what the show started clicking for me is where I realized that oh, this is not traditional good versus evil sci-fi. It's not even Asimov's idea of of you know heady idea sci-fi. It's the idea of what is it like for actual human beings um to exist in Asimov's world, which Asimov as, as much of a genius as he was, didn't really have as much interest in, like, the, the human experience of, of existing within these big ideas. So I think I think that's really where it clicked, like, oh, this is the human side. It's, it's like, you're not adapting Asimov as, if, as, um, as much as you're looking at the reverse side of it and finding things that weren't said before.
3: Yeah, it's. I'm glad you said that, because episode three is one of my favorite episodes, and it, by design, was meant to be a very different kind of episode and i think so far at least in terms of the feedback i'm getting from people they were very surprised by where we go in episode three but in a way i think episode three is very emblematic of our version of what foundation Mm -hmm. is because it's 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 taking these themes and figuring out all these surprising emotional ins and outs Mm -hmm. i'm not interested in traditional black and white stories i like shades of gray Mm -hmm. And I challenge our audience, uh, our audience, and, and also our writers to come up with ways to sympathize and empathize with the emperors who, who on the face of it, seem like monsters. And I think we call that episode, the, the beginning of that episode, the short film. And um, there will be more of them uh, in the series. And I love the opportunity. That's something that, you know we're not really condensing Asimov's foundation with this show. We're actually expanding it. Um, And, and that's a luxury. And um, I love being able to do those kind of tone poems. And, and most of the people that see episode three are very moved and surprisingly moved by what happens by dusk with dusk in that storyline. And that's what we were going for.
2: Yeah. um, It's, and that's, that's where I was really won over, and it's where I was watching with my wife, who's never read Asimov, who's never been into, right? yeah. And she's then, then your wife.
3: Your wife is our audience.
2: She is, and she turned to me after um, episode two, which has the romantic relationship between uh, Gail and Rash, and. I I told her, Asimov is a great writer, but he didn't write sex. He didn't write romance. Um, And she says, well, well, Foundation's a sexy show. I'm into this. I I, I never thought I'd say (laughs) that about Foundation. But I want want to let you know that's working. You've connected with the person already.
3: (laughs) Uh, I I can also credit my own wife for that, who's not a science fiction fan. And she would constantly say, it's got to be emotional. It's got to be sexy. (laughs) You know, know, we have to care about these characters.
2: Yeah, Yeah, and... I guess in terms of uh, once you have the story locked down, you have this approach you've described already. The, the look of the show, I mean, anybody who jumps into Star Wars and Star Trek has something to build on. They know they know what those worlds look like. Whereas it's hard for me to watch Foundation and say, "Oh, it looks like this," because it really feels like it. It. It, it's its own universe. It doesn't feel like I, I look at it, the show, I, and I, I do not feel like I'm looking at something that's been torn from somebody else or ripped off from somebody else. How did you go about building like the spaceships, the, the, the production design, making sure it felt like its own world and not like you're leaning on somebody else?
3: From a visual standpoint, that was the biggest challenge with the show, is you know, you've got these pillars of Star Wars, Star Trek, maybe alien, and, and I would say 90% of the science fiction that we consume visually Um, sort of owes an allegiance to those three films Mm -hmm. and um, I'm not saying we were successful all the time but I would say again and again and again with wardrobe, with makeup with the design of spaceships, with visual effects don't bring me something that looks like Star Wars, don't bring me something that looks like Star Trek I, I, I want it to be our own thing which is no small feat because even when I was talking with Apple sometimes they would say well what is it Going to look like and i'd say i know this is easy to say but i'm going to try to make it look like something you haven't seen before mm-hmm. but even if you uh let's take a uh, whole holograms as an example right mm-hmm. i mean there's this visual language of holograms you know, in star wars star trek that they you know they're they're see-through and they emit light so when you're shooting them on stage there's a lot of interactive light and we started experimenting with this idea of okay we call them sandagrams they're particles they don't emit light they reflect light they refract light they cast shadows um and and so that became this language that we used that 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 changed the way we used holograms on the set or the way the math is depicted from the prime radiant was something completely different and a lot of design and thought was into what does the math look like when it blooms out of the prime radiant it was It was not easy, and it was frustrating. I I feel like having made a season of it, most of the time we're successful, and at least now we can point and say, okay, that feels like foundation. That Mm -hmm. doesn't feel like something else.
2: Yeah, and I will say, one thing I really enjoyed, um, like, I love that you... I know, uh Asimov was, was, was ahead of the curve uh, when, when he made sure his robot stories and his empire stories and foundation stories were all tied together in their own universe. I mean, that's something that, you know, it's very common now, but there's dialogue in this season that, make, that confirms, you know, the, the, the iRobot stories happened. They happened in the past of this show. Um, have you, I know you're in season one, and I'm asking about the future, and that's frustrating because you want to concentrate right now. But I got to ask, do you have that pipe dream of having the Asimov universe being told multiple shows?
3: Um Look, I will certainly say that, you know, Asimov had kind of retroactively created this cohesive universe. There are certainly elements that we pulled from. And there are Easter eggs that people should try to spot in season one. When I presented the plan for season one, Apple knew that it was a um, a big undertaking. And they, they wanted at least some inkling that I had a direction of where I was going mm-hmm. for future seasons. So I did present... A loose plan for eight seasons and I and there are definitely um story moments and threads that are set up in season one that will not pay off in this season that but at least we know what we're writing towards um, mm-hmm. um we're not just starting from scratch there is a road map yeah um one thing I can't remember I've interviewed most
2: of your cast today and one of them said that yes. one of them quoted you saying that time is a character in this show yes and I feel like, is time going to be the character throughout all the seasons? Because I feel like surely by season two, you need a brand new cast. It's, everyone's going to be dead, right? Or what's the plan going forward like that?
3: Um, interesting that you say that, but that's not an entirely true supposition.
2: <laughs> Noted. i
3: definitely a character in the show. Uh, I, I think people will be surprised where we get to at the end of the season. Yeah, um,
2: also you mentioned Game of Thrones earlier I want to, and I know they're very different shows but the, the, one, the one way that they cross over is that Game of Thrones tosses you in this universe says there's a lot of details a lot of characters we trust that you will pay attention not fold laundry not make dinner and, and watch and absorb it and by the end of episode one I was like oh yeah I'm ready to be lost in here I'm ready to be lost in this world can you talk about writing a show where you are trusting the audience to not want to be handheld and not want to have everything explained to them bit by bit
3: I, I like, look, I, I can only write the kind of shows that I like to watch. I, I don't like to be talked down to. Mm-hmm. I like to immerse myself in something. I love it when a little moment, offhanded moment that happens in episode two pays off in episode eight or even in a later season. I I like the universes of these big epics to feel fully lived in in 360 degrees. I like I like it when there are shades of gray. I like it when not every question is answered. I will say in this season, there are, we answer a lot of questions and there are some questions we don't answer. And and hopefully the audience will be patient because if we haven't answered a question, there's a reason why we haven't answered a question. Mm-hmm. And it's not because we forgot about it.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have time for one more question. So I hope you don't mind me going a little off topic for this one. Um... All uh,
3: depends on what you ask
2: pretty much my I told people I was interviewing you my entire um, staff who have not seen Foundation yet, so down foundation question says ooh, ask about the status of the Hellraiser reboot so I'm, I've got to ask, what's going on with the Hellraiser reboot
3: shooting as we speak uh, we're about two thirds of the way through it and I, um, it's it's going to be pretty neat, uh, Bruckner is definitely um, sticking true to the mythology but also reinventing some of it, I'm, it's uh, it's uh i think it's going to be beautiful and terrifying
2: all right well i'm out of time uh thank you so much um i really enjoy the episodes i watch i watch most of the season one screeners so um i'm on board and i wish you the best of luck today and going forward this is awesome great all thank right. you so much
0: All right, that's going to do it for today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. If you and your team want to cut down on busy work and get more choice and control over accounts payable, you need Bill. Bill Accounts Payable is your secret weapon for saving time on AP. And with a special offer at bill.com slash podcast, you'll save money too. With Bill, streamline your entire AP process including bill creation approvals and payments you can pay with ach credit card check and international wire transfer plus you can easily integrate with most accounting software no wonder hundreds of thousands of businesses are already using bill to manage their ap schedule a free demo now to see how bill can automate your financial operations and right now get 15 percent off when you subscribe to bill accounts payable there's never been a better time to sign up This special offer is available for a limited time only at bill.com slash podcast. Terms apply. See bill.com slash podcast for details.